Hey guys, it's Chris here. Welcome to the ninth episode of the UX Support Group podcast. In today's episode, I'm speaking with David Delgado, a UX designer working in New York City. And just like all the episodes, all the other episodes, we talk about his professional journey. But what's really interesting is he sheds light on how he found his niche within the UX design field and how throughout his career he practiced UX methodologies in certain roles that led him to getting into UX to begin with and then how he dibbled and dabbled in UX roles and and found his true niche as a overall UX designer he still does you know a, a little bit of research here um, a little bit of design there but he's really found a place where he's in love with what he's doing and uh, yeah I really hope you guys enjoy this episode it is very content rich he shares a lot of tips and tricks and just uh, tons of sites that he uses as well as just resources and books yeah I really hope you guys enjoy this episode without further ado uh, we'll just uh, hop straight into a quick ad break and I will catch you guys on the end of this. Hey David, thank you for joining me on this ninth episode of the UX Support Group podcast. Um, I guess we could just get started by uh, introducing yourself to the people a little bit, um, telling us who you are, uh, where you're from, um, and your job title if you can. Sure. Um, so my name is David Delgado. I am a UX designer at Lifion, um, which is an HR tech company. And um, originally I'm from Miami, um, lived in a couple other places such as DC, Shanghai, China, and now New York City, where I've been based for about three years now. And yeah, that's um, kind of it before we dive into the questions. But, um, but just, I'm a uh, just a quick summary, um, I'm a UX designer who has held roles um, as a researcher, as a generalist designer, and then also as a visual designer. Um, but my background actually comes from marketing and digital marketing specifically. And so that was my segue into, um, that was one of my segues actually into UX that I'll get into in a little bit. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly kind of where I want to start. I mean, you've been through it all <laughs> in terms of just career and location. Um, so that means you have uh, quite a different outlook on UX, uh, being exposed to different cultures. Uh, but yeah, why don't you shine some light on where did your career start and how did you get into the UX field? Sure. So <clears throat> my career, um, my first few years of professional experience were in Shanghai, China. Um, how I got there is kind of like a story in of itself, but long story short, one of my neighbors um, from Miami moved uh, to Shanghai and I ran into him in an airport. Um, I think it was the during spring break of my last year in college. And during that time, it was the probably about one year into the financial crisis and I was just joking around. I said, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you up for a job and I'm going to move to China. And I was kind of joking about it, but then when I was assessing my options, I thought, well, maybe China isn't such a bad idea. Yeah. And so I really gave him, and then he, uh, was kind enough to give me an opportunity as an intern at his firm as a 
more like a data analyst and so it was a, an investment firm which had nothing to do with my marketing background at all yeah and so I did that for about six months and then I quickly realized that um, well I didn't have the intention of staying there but I, I liked being in China I found it to be very interesting um, and very dynamic and thought that um, it, it could be a place worth staying for a little bit longer I didn't know how much longer yeah. and so from there um, I worked for a Taiwanese company and so that company was a retail consultancy and what they specialized in is helping like uh, Western companies enter the China market and then specifically do e-commerce businesses so they had a retail consultancy and then I was focused on e-commerce okay so that's really where my story actually begins so what I was doing for them is um, I became an expert in you know uh, Chinese social media and digital marketing tools and then um, in general on the Chinese e-commerce landscape and so I collaborated with their vendors which in this case were web developers um, to produce their China digital um, properties so like their website and anything else um, even like their um, the systems that would interface with their warehouse software how they would fulfill orders shipping all that kind of stuff yeah. and so it was through that that I was exposed to um, design and development processes and so I, w I found that very interesting I would you know that was my first segue into you know creating wireframes in Keynote for example yeah. and starting to understand um, the fundamentals of concepts like information architecture um, localization because they had an existing sometimes very sophisticated um, websites and e-commerce strategies in the United States or in Western markets that could not be applied to China for a variety of reasons for example um, the firewall um, just cultural differences um, attitudinal differences etc yeah. and so um, localizing um, you know, lo localizing a brand identity and then um, uh, consequently their strategy was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And yeah. so really that was in of itself a UX activity, but I had no idea that that was a UX activity because, you know, I wasn't exposed to a lot of these concepts at all. So it was a lot of intuition, I would say, um, and just like self-learning. Were there any resources that you were using that kind of helped you along the way? So at the time I was primarily focused on digital marketing. and so. A lot of my attitudes around, you know, for example, how to effectively translate a website um, came from that domain. Um, there was, you know, I remember back in like 2011, I was reading a lot of like Smashing Magazine and, you know, stuff like that. So there was some element of like web design and I found myself drawn to, um, you know, web design and understanding layouts and how to do wireframes properly, um, you know, doing, you know, user flows, etc. Um, but it was really uh, focused on Kind of the acquisition channel so like performance marketing so getting people on the site so the traffic component and then um pushing them sort towards a specific behavior yeah and that was largely um as a result of like appropriate messaging and then later on it became a lot more about um really the visual design and the ux and like how you actually push people through various parts of you know that medium or through that um website or app or whatever it may have been yeah um and so those were that was kind of, you know, in those early years, I was, you know, largely looking at it from like an e-commerce lens, but what I was really doing was experience design. Yeah. And so I, it just wasn't labeled as such and that and design wasn't necessarily in my title. Yeah. So your next step after that, when you came to the States, I'm assuming you, you continued that trajectory within UX. What were your... So um, after I worked at the Taiwanese company, I went to an agency because I wanted to dive a lot deeper into digital marketing and then um, use those skill sets for multiple kinds of companies yeah so I was 
fortunate to have worked with, you know, cosmetic brands. I worked with like Sephora, Clarence, a couple B2B enterprises, you know, Hertz, all sorts of stuff. And um, after a while, I got very disillusioned with agency culture mm -hmm. and for a variety of reasons. For one, um, you have to give away a lot of work for free. Um, I felt that um, my, my work just wasn't as valued and appreciated. Um, it just generally, I, I couldn't really be as thoughtful about my work as I could in other environments or as, 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 um, as much as I wanted to at least. So you were more or less like a creative factory. Yeah. Um, I started dabbling into visual design at this time as well. So I taught myself how to use Photoshop and Illustrator. Um, and I also, you know, photography is one of my hobbies. So, you know, I leveraged those skills, in, you know, on my, in my job as well. And so I was designing banner ads, um, email campaigns, all sorts of stuff. And um, basically, uh, I, I was just, you know, didn't want to be in, I didn't see a future in being in, in an agency and providing marketing services as a career. And so I took a deep look at, um, you know, at my life and just kind of figured out, okay, well, I know I want to transition somewhere else. And, you know, I kind of haphazardly at the time, this was around 2014, decided that, okay, well, you know, I'm passionate about marketing and understanding people. And I really like the psych psychology component of marketing um, and delivering solutions that resonate with people in order to drive a specific business result, which could vary. Um, so I figured that technology would be a good segue to do that. And yeah. so I transitioned to a company named Meltwater, which was marketing automation software. So basically, they automate like a uh, customer service, that's, that's email pretty, marketing. That's pretty close to like, that's that's a dream spot from where you came from. Yeah, yeah, so it was really ideal. The only problem was that um, I was sold on this notion that, oh, you're gonna do a lot of consulting yeah. and you're gonna be able to um, advise really big companies on their marketing strategy and how to use our tool, et cetera. It turned out to be much more of a sales job um, rather than like a consultative job. And so, and the just given my, personality and um, general dignity as a human being like sales uh, was just not the right fit for me personally yeah. um, and, and it was very apparent after a few months that the focus was on you know getting people to buy more product at whatever cost and it was a lot less about being very intelligent on the kinds of solutions that you offer your clients yeah. um, and so, so, so basically I, I knew that I, that wasn't really going to be a good spot for me and, yeah. but I stayed there for a little while for a few reasons I felt that the culture was pretty good and there was a lot of like upsides to it um, and I found my I found myself drawn to product and I remember really specifically in 2015 we did you know a rebrand as a company and then we also launched kind of the new version of our platform mm -hmm. and so there was a a team called the CX team which is called the client experience team okay. and I wasn't part of this team um, however one of the people that was in that task force which is basically what it was um, you know was in my office and so I found myself really interested in what they were doing and how they were um, you know approaching things like onboarding and you know how do we optimize the sales cycle you know in a way to better understand what our client needs are and then even within you know how are what kind of reporting are they actually looking for yeah. how do we deliver um, you know features that resonate with end users as opposed to kind of superfluous or blindly like you know building things yeah um, and so since I was in touch with the customers on a daily basis I was essentially doing user research yeah and I was feeding those you know that information back up to client experience and I found myself much more engaged in creating a better product than I was in like trying to sell the product and yeah. service the product I get you um, and so I stayed at that company for about a year and a half and then towards the end of that I, I knew I was kind of a little 
the, the whole sales culture left a really bad taste in my mouth um, yeah. in that particular place. And so I kind of took a few months and I don't even know how it happened that I thought UX was a good idea. Like I can't pinpoint the exact time that yeah. like the word UX came to my, my mind and I knew I wanted to perhaps pursue that. Um, but I did start to read a few books. I took a few Udemy courses and I increasingly felt that this was like the perfect, um, or not perfect, but it was a good mixture of a lot of my skill sets and strengths, which is, you know, doing a lot of um, understanding people at a fundamental level and then designing solutions around people's needs. And so, and then on top of that, there was like a visual design and creative element. Um, I don't come from a graphic design or formal art school background but at you all. you teaching yourself. But I was, I've been teaching myself, yeah. um, but I still, I, I still think that people that have the formal background and training um, have a slight edge over me and it's a little different so it's not to say it's better or worse like I think in some ways uh, teaching yourself is better because you're always like open to trying new tools and yeah. doing tutorials and whatnot whereas a lot of people that I know that went to art school haven't you know gone on like a YouTube tutorial ever like their their skills are like kind of static yeah they treat them that way at least like oh yeah I didn't learn in design in school so I'm not gonna learn it or you know yeah. something like that or it's um, like the one truth for them yeah is what they were taught exactly and no. so they don't they don't really push themselves because for me it was I did it for fun because I really liked it yeah. and they did it because they needed to complete an assignment yeah and so you know I think there's something to be said about that yeah but, no there's a lot to be said about that I mean I, and I feel like that's yeah. what makes the UX field so special and I, I've talked about it with past people on the podcast where it's like there is no one like type of UX designer we all come from different backgrounds it's because it's all about empathy and you know a lot of it is communication and collaboration with mm -hmm. other parties um, you know whether that be end users or even you know business stakeholders mm -hmm. it's a lot of you know getting everyone on the same page and solving for the right problems mm -hmm. um, and that's what I think makes you know everyone's journey so special um, and that's why I'm like trying to figure out what everyone's journey is um, so yeah um, you mentioned some of these resources, like in terms of books and sites and some Udemy courses. Um, do you know exactly what they were? Um, yeah. So, um, Udemy course, I can I could I can pull that up for you, and maybe we can, you know, maybe add it on here or something yeah. like that. Um, one one of my favorite books initially was um, Don't Make Me Think, you know, okay. which is like kind of a, I think an entry level book for most people, but. You know, I read that like probably eight or nine years ago and it still leaves an impression. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that no matter what you see on Dribbble or any of these sites, all these beautiful interfaces, the, fundament the fundamental principles of usability have been established for well over 30 years. So you could actually build like an, in like an Instagram UI using yeah. Windows 95 components. And actually <laughs> I've seen that done. Like there's actually a few GIFs that demonstrate that. And so the, the whole point is that it's really not about um, you know, kind of like the, the more glamorous side of UX, which is, you know, these beautiful animations and um, very pretty kind of dribble designs. And so, um, you know, some additional resources, I guess, would be um, 100 Things That Every Designer Needs to Know About People. That's a really good book. Um, yeah, so there's a myriad of podcasts. There's, um, you know, I think that there, you need to have some degree of you know, technical details. Uh, a book apart series is really good because they're about 80 pages and they're very, 
selective about what they include in those books. I think okay. that a lot of UX books are very derivative and they're largely there to like stroke the ego of the author instead mm -hmm. of really telling you what you want. Um, I can see that. <laughs> Erica Hall is a good resource for research. Okay. So there's a good book called um, Just Enough Research. And I think um, it's really important because if you're in a real product environment, 99.9% um, .9 of the time, you're not going to be able to have a very luxurious timeline in terms of how you deliver insights. Yes. And so it's about knowing what tools are, out to, uh, are at your disposal and knowing when to leverage them and how. And so there's a time for something for being very buttoned up and there's also a time for being a little bit more scrappy yeah. and ha being able to distinguish between the two, like understanding, you know, how to use certain um, UX research methods to, de to inform a product and not so much around, I think it, it, it's very common, particularly amongst researchers to want to do full-fledged studies, have these beautiful reports. Yeah. Sometimes, especially in a product environment where, um, attention span is a very valuable currency um, yeah. less is a lot more so knowing how to do like oh, I just need to do a card sort or I need to do a survey with six questions that's yeah. it um, and so I think having like developing that skill early on and like really distilling like what it is you need to know in order to like inform a, a marketing campaign or whether it be a website or an app is just absolutely critical yeah like that's probably one of the most important skills um, no, as a researcher and as any UXer, today. <laughs> um, is like don't over design, like, you know, knowing to design just enough and knowing to research just enough. Yeah. Um, like if you can deliver, you know, gray wireframes and still get the product built exactly how you want, then that's that's a sign of a good designer, not someone that goes all all in high yeah. fidelity, spends three weeks on it and then it ends up getting a very similar result as the same person who did, yeah. you know, grayscale wireframes in three days. I get you. So. Um, and then let me just think of some um, other resources. So, I mean, Medium was extraordinarily helpful for me. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a number of different, you know, publications there that you can follow that are UX related. Um, but I think the Book Apart series and then NielsenNorman.com. So Nielsen Norman is basically the one of the biggest authorities on usability in the world. Mm -hmm. um, they have studies on every industry that you could possibly imagine. They have in-person workshops. Of a few of those that I've attended um, and they just have great articles so I would just highly recommend that for anyone starting in UX it's like very it's not clickbaity um, it's not just like someone trying to like get views on their medium publication yeah. it's like hardcore usability that you know they as a business they sell um, UX reports to large companies um, looking for you know you know very uh, reliable UX research that they can yeah. make decisions on so it's almost borderline academic, but I think as uh, someone starting out in UX, it's, it could be very beneficial to understand like the kinds of real problems that you deal with as a designer. Like everyone yeah. focuses on, oh, well, this is a pretty app. But as a designer, a lot of times you're focused on how do I make this table usable? How do I add actions mm -hmm. and then um, make the actions visible and you know, pleasant to use across multiple breakpoints and devices. Yeah. Like these are very granular mm -hmm. topics um, and they're much more, they're a lot closer to the kinds of problems you really attack as a UX designer rather than um, some of these like redesign case studies that are, are great for your portfolio. They're a great exercise to do in general, um, but they're very disconnected from the kinds of things that are real 
UX designer does yeah. out in the world. I don't know. How do you feel like? No, I, I agree. I mean, I when people ask me for advice, they often like like one thing I tell them is like be wary when you look at things like dribble a lot of these things are designed to to look pretty and solve for the data that is at, that's at hand but they're not really thinking about like real world data like you can look at tons of like beautiful dashboards on dribble but the minute you try to apply that to what real data looks like it looks it looks nothing like what your design what the design looked like on dribble it's like all right, no one really thought about this. Like, it doesn't scale. I don't know how I'm going to work this out. Like, it doesn't apply to any grid. Um, so it's like, be sparse when looking at those things. Like, you can obviously, you know, grab inspiration from them in terms of, like, visual cues. But in terms of, like, copying them one-to-one, you know, it's, design is more about solving for the underlying problem at hand and discovering and making sure you're solving for that right problem mm. before you go ahead and execute. Um, and one thing I've learned is like, when you're looking for inspiration, oftentimes it's better to uh, look at competitors and other people in the space. They don't even have to be competitors. They could have, you know, they could be doing something similar to uh, along the lines of what you're doing. So if you're like doing, I don't know, like uh, an ordering flow, uh, for like an ice cream shop, you can get inspiration from you know car sites where people are customizing their cars. Uh, you can get you know uh, inspiration from you know insurance sites where people are customizing their insurance. Um, you don't have to be locked into like oh no I'm only you know doing ice cream so I can only look at like Hagen Dazs and like mm-hmm. Ben and Jerry's. Totally. Um, so just thinking outside the box and seeing what other people do mm. and what's successful out there and like building off of those patterns because they've already been proven successful so there's like it's kind of been validated to some point and you can feel a lot safer making those design decisions um but yeah that said um one thing i want to know is you had a, a very distinct background I want to know if anything from your background in marketing prepared you well for UX. Like, what aspects of your journey prepared you well for UX, and what did you bring with you? Um, just you know, some people might be in your shoes, um, mm-hmm. trying to make that jump, but they feel like you know they have to learn a whole lot of new things. While you did learn a lot of new things, what from your past helped you just transition so easily? Yeah. So. Um and I didn't talk too much about my transition, but um, one the way that um, I'm gonna answer your question. But yeah. what kickstarted when I decided after my um, that job at a software company, at the marketing software company, um, I decided that UX was a good fit. I read a lot of books. I also took a boot camp at General Assembly, yeah. and that's what really helped me transition. Um, but in terms of what I think my secret sauce was, in terms of what I had, what advantage I had over other. Um, aspiring UXers or even like you know visual designers or people with a formal um, design background um, is my accountability and mindfulness of business objectives yeah so I was very much in the trenches like in marketing it's basically all about money it's like you know you spend one dollar I want to get five back yeah and so I think about design the exact same way in many ways Um, not necessarily always in terms of a monetary ROI but more so around you know, being very clear around what are our business objectives, what are what do, what behavior do we want to elicit, uh, and so there's behavior just from like a, you know, I want them to check out, and then there's also the emotional dimension of the behavior, 
of like, how do I want them to feel through this process? Like, what is the imprint on their mind that I'm going to leave? And so that, I think, um, very much comes from my background in marketing because I'm very technical from like an analytics perspective. So I've, you know, I've been using, I got a Google Analytics certification uh, a long time ago. And then um, I even have one from Baidu, which is like um, the Google in China. I'm probably like at the time, I was one of the few Western people who probably even had that. Yeah. And so as a result, I have that, you know, analytics and data-driven mentality. Um, I understood how to run A-B testing um, in the context of, you know, kind of a campaign optimization, mm -hmm. which I then applied to UX. But it yeah. was really that um, being very mindful of business objectives and, and then using that to guide whatever design decisions that I wanted. So, um, and I think a lot of people that come from, let's say, a graphic design background um, kind of didn't have, don't have that background in business and they certainly don't have that professional exposure because the designers are usually very siloed off from like where the business decisions are taking place yeah. whereas I was talking to people that were footing the bills and you know and you know very much being held accountable for profits and losses on certain so my decisions they carried like there was a real economic impact on them it's like you either made money or you lost money it was like very real yeah um, and so and when you have that kind of rigor when when you train yourself it's like do i need that thing in the design does it actually you know lead me to where we need to go mm -hmm. um and so i think that kind of training um made it to be frank a lot easier for me to get a ux job after i finished my boot camp yeah um because i wasn't just like oh i make things pretty like i i yeah. speak and i carry myself and i act in a way where like I'm here, like design is a weapon to yeah. like slay something or some goal. Like I, I, that's how I, you know, treat it. And I think that resonates with employers and with business owners Yeah. because they invest in design to get an outcome. They usually don't invest in it to make it pretty. And so there's um, a misconception amongst a lot of kind of more ignorant employers and even business owners that design is something to make things pretty mm -hmm. and you're as a designer you are constantly at odds with that yeah. and the sooner you break down that barrier the sooner that you're going to be valued and your voice is going to matter yeah. and then that's how you really get shit done in design no i couldn't have said it better myself <laughs> and i'm sure you you've cleared up uh, a lot of confusion some people may have um coming from the marketing industry and just coming from business in general um coming into our industry like you don't have to be a graphic designer to be a UX designer. Like, if anything, you know, it's almost preferable that you're not a graphic designer. I felt like, for me, a lot of the challenge was learning how to not push the boundaries. Like, as a graphic designer, like, we're just using our artistic abilities to, you know, uh, solve a client's problems, but we're told to, like, push the boundaries on what's possible and try to, you know, create something that is uh, almost like captures people's attention. And then when you come into UX, especially if you're a graphic designer, you're more leaning towards like UI, you feel like you want to express yourselves or you want to express your client using your artistic ability to its fullest. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, that goes, a lot of times it goes against the grain and you're kind of, you find yourself like reinventing the wheel and like, you know, certain situations call for reinventing the wheel, but they have to be validated. There has to be a, a why, like, you know, you're not gonna reinvent the list picker. You're not gonna reinvent the share button. Those things are learned behaviors. 
Um, and the minute you know you as a graphic designer come in with that graphic design background in mind, and you start changing those things, you're not really building something that's usable. You're building something that's pretty but causes a lot of friction. Um, sure. Yeah, and and I I really enjoy visual design. Like I, you know, you know one of the one of the reasons that I or one of the um, I guess one of the triggers that at least made me cognizant that I thought design was a good route was like, you know, when I was, you know, doing, when I was in digital marketing, one of my favorite things about doing, preparing a pitch was I would get really um, kind of uh, granular with like the formatting and like typography on like the presentations. Like I really enjoyed making presentations and like templates and stuff like that. So, I mean, I really enjoyed the uh, generating emotion through design and like really stepping out of the box and, you know, throwing in like, I have to like exercise restraint sometimes like when designing like oh I want to throw in like a weird skeuomorphic element or something yeah. like that or <laughs> you know just you know have some some animations or whatever um, but to your point like you know you need to exercise restraint there's a time and place for it yeah um, it's just you need to use it strategically and not everywhere because then it, it loses its magic if it's everywhere exactly so um, so what were your biggest challenges when learning UX I mean uh, I always talk about this in this podcast just because it's such a big thing now in terms of just like imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Something I feel like uh, kind of everyone deals with in, in retrospect to just life and trying new things. Um, but yeah, what were your biggest challenges coming to UX? Um, I think so the identity of a UX designer and what I mean, there's so many articles about like what what's the difference between a UX and UI designer and all this yeah. stuff, right? Um, it's really about forging your own identity as a designer and mm-hmm. so a lot of times you're told like what a UX designer should be. Um, I've worked in B2B and B2C scenarios and UX designers come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Like there's some people that are really into like user flows and diagrams and like information architecture. There's some that are much more into like just doing CSS animations all day and that's their thing. Yeah. Um, so for me the challenge was you know, trying to be everything to everybody. Um, I took on a, a several freelance projects where um, they were really looking for more of a visual designer. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of fell flat on my, I was really early in my career and um, they, I kind of tried to be leverage my strengths, which is like, hey, we need to test this with people and um, really understand what the requirements are from a design standpoint. And they just wanted like a pretty interface. And so, um, you know, and basically, and then they would ask me to do illustrations, and really, I at that point, I probably should have said, like, look, I don't think this is a good fit, yeah. um, and really stood my ground, because I was, you know, I'm very open to learning new things, but I'm yeah. also self-aware that this is not the kind of designer that I am. Yeah. They were really looking for, like, a digital designer, or just a plain, like, visual designer. Yeah. Um, and so I think being very clear at, with it, maybe not even within the first six months to a year, uh, but you need to have like a manifesto of sorts as a designer and be uh, understand like what parts of the design process you're attracted to, what kinds of activities you find joy in, um, what kinds of activities you do not find joy in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that way when you uh, go to an interview and you assess a company or assess an opportunity, you can be really clear about why you want to roll, you can be clear about um, you know what you bring to the table and you know what you how you would like to grow yeah. um, and I think you know as you have multiple UX jobs and you're in the industry for a year um, it's it's totally fine to you know put your stake in the ground you're like I'm not I'm just not that kind of designer that's not me yeah and you can find someone else to do that and that's great you know I'm in a design team now 
the head of UX um, is like a prolific thinker and extraordinarily strategic, and you know he can lead a design team of 30 people. And so you don't need to, you know, be everything to everyone. You don't need to be a unicorn, um, but you need to have a secret sauce. You need to be you, and so you need to figure out what is who are you at, in terms of a, a designer. Like, what kind of designer are you? Yeah. And the better, the sooner that you can communicate that um, to either freelance opportunities or um, to prospective employers. Um, they're going to respect that. Sometimes they won't match what they want, um, but it's better that they know that up front as opposed to you being miserable for six months and yeah. like you know leaving anyways. So I would say that that's really important. Um, and then really dipping your toes in like all aspects of UX. So um, you know, doing a little bit understanding research, um, definitely like a little bit of UI because especially in the beginning, if you're taking on freelance projects, it's going to be a lot of UI work. Um, yeah not many people are going to hire you to do a, a proper discovery process because most people think they know their customers. That's the yeah. unfortunate truth. <laughs> um, and so um, really being well-rounded in that regard. And that's part, of, that's part of that process of discovering yourself as a designer. And so, um, you know, not really waiting for opportunities to, do, to design. So, you know, doing your own projects. So, um, you know, thinking of, you know, any like let's say something that you can either redesign some of your favorite apps, which I think is a fantastic exercise. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it teaches you a lot about like grids and you know how like they achieve certain effects on like you know let's say drop shadows or card treatments and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, interviewing people for to inform a specific product or a prototype. Um, so there there's so many tools right now. You can mimic like animations that you've seen. So go on like you know. Flinto or like Principal or Framers, you know, YouTube channel, and they have like a lot of examples that you could, you know, just try and mimic. I think that's a really good example. So you can begin to understand like how motion kind of gets involved. Um, looking at some uh, case studies, um, there's a site that I really like called useronboard.com that basically rips apart onboardings of very famous apps like Asana, Dropbox, and it's like a step-by-step -step, uh, breakdown of like, you know, login flows, error messaging, and you know, a lot of genuine UX issues and problems yeah. that a real designer solves. Um, not pretty things that you see on Dribbble. Yeah. Um, Dribbble's really cool, um, but if you think that that's your job as a UX designer, you're always gonna be treated as a graphic designer mm -hmm. and you're not gonna gain any respect in the organization. Um, and that's just not what real companies hire designers to do. Yeah. They don't do that. They're like, they'll look at it and be like, yeah, that's cool, but like, um, you know, we there's like 18 dependencies and blockers for why we can't do that, yeah. and it doesn't really like meet our goals. So, um, yeah, I would say that that's, and I think uh, the biggest challenge is really getting your first UX job. That's the that's the biggest one, right? Yeah. Like getting someone to invest in you and take a leap of faith on you as a designer. Um, and I think the most important part is demonstrating your thinking. Um, and so, having you know, you can go to hackathons or you, I, I've never been a huge fan of hackathons because I've never gotten like an output of one that I could use personally. I dedicated a weekend and then I'm like, oh, like I can't really put this in my portfolio. So <laughs> I would choose like a passion project and do it over the course of several months. Um, there are a lot of key components of like a UX portfolio that I think you should study. There's a lot of tools like uxfolio.com that, you know, you can very easily um, create a portfolio and they show you how to do it. You need to have a case study type model where it shows, you know, what the prompt was, um, you know, kind of what your, what were your research questions if you had any, or just on a very basic level, like what were the things that you needed to find out to inform this product? Yeah. 
how you went about finding that information, you know, what you did, um, I suppose how you synthesize that information and then started to, you know, have like create certain like UX assets, like could be a user flow or it could be like how you're a site map or maybe you did a card sort later. Yeah. Um, and then, and then eventually kind of showing what the end product looked like. Yeah. And so having several of those types of case studies, um, that you can speak to very, you know, fluently, um, to a prospective employer and basically say like, okay, well, here's, here's some of the challenges I faced. This is my thinking around this. Um, here's why I did this. And here was sort of the end solution. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's one component of it. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, and then just basically demonstrating like a wide variety of skill sets yeah. and an ability to tackle problems in, in, a, in a myriad of ways. And kind of like back to what I said earlier around knowing when to use which parts of your toolkit, mm -hmm. um, because I find that a lot of case studies, they use every part of the toolkit and that's a very unrealistic scenario. So they'll be like, oh yeah, I did, uh, did some user interviews then we did surveys then we did a card sort yeah. um, and then we did block frames and then we did wireframes and then I did hear some animations yeah. and I have yet, I don't know about you, but I have yet to be on any project yeah. that has all those elements in one. No, um, I get you. Unless you're in like a very early stage startup mm -hmm. where you're like wearing many hats. Um, if you're joining a bigger organization, chances are those things are delegated very finely. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So I'm kind of rambling now, but I think, uh, I think I touched on some of the main points I wanted to yeah, hit on. Yeah, no, you, you really did. Um, one thing I want to know about is you spoke about communication and like selling yourself. How do you work with others, um, especially like other teams that you have exposure to? Uh, do you have any tips or tricks for people in just navigating certain conversations within our field? Mm -hmm. um, how do you talk to developers versus how do you talk to someone on sales versus someone on editorial? Mm -hmm. um, do you have any tips there? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, um, those are all very, not all very challenging, but those are tricky relationships to navigate depending on the organization where UX could be considered like, oh, like, you know, take a look at what I built and, you know, make sure it's the spec. So for developers, I would say that having a deep respect for how the product is built, understanding what the tech stack is. Um, whenever you um, deliver like a spec or you're incorporating your design involving, you know, it doesn't have to be every developer because quite frankly, most developers are building things and they don't want to be involved in the whole design process. Um, but maybe having a couple of developers that you go to could be like the, the tech lead or maybe like one front end developer that you develop a good relationship with. and asking them questions around, hey, like, is this feasible? How would you actually do this? And really showing an interest in two things. One is developing designs that are, you know, realistic and not like unnecessarily complicated. So like if there's like a card treatment that, you know, they've used on other parts of the, the website or app or platform, you know, just sticking with that card for now, yeah. unless there's like a really good reason to like have a different style of card, yeah. you know? So things like that where you're, you know, to your point, like reinventing the wheel, yeah. um, because they really don't appreciate when they're like, well, we already have this container that does the same thing and here you are designing a new one, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that there's that. And then the other thing with developers is exploring edge cases. So this goes down to user flows. So a good example is, let's say you have an onboarding flow or a notification flow or something like that and being really clear about all the various edge cases around, okay, well, what if there's duplicates or what if they exit? Um, what if they come from this channel? What if they yeah. come from that channel? Um, how are we gonna 
know that um, it's their first time using the platform. Oh, we don't know that because of analytics. So maybe we need to put do not show again yeah. as a ticker because yeah. we have no way of doing that and that's out of scope. So, you know, asking questions like that that move very, very, very far beyond the ideal scenario, which is usually like what a product manager is kind of focused on. It's like, oh, well, here's like what the feature is. Yeah. Um, but from a development standpoint, they're, they're going to have to grapple with all the edge cases and, you know, and eventually be blamed if something breaks on that platform. Yeah. And so really helping them think through that. For product managers, it's really about being clear on the business goals and defining scope very well. Yeah. So you could design something like, here's my ideal state, here's what we want, but being really clear on like what, like which sprint it's going to be worked on, um, who, who's going to be working on it, um, you know, any other competing priorities, yeah. and there might be other like you know conversations that they have with executives or with um, sales or anyone else that's really calling the shots and having that kind of like context and be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So, you know, so when you come up with a design, they know that you're coming from a place of empathy and you're not just like, you know, product managers are, are oftentimes scared that you're just gonna go off the rails yeah. and you're gonna disappear for a week and you're gonna come back with something that's like totally unbuildable, like not feasible at all and like yeah. doesn't, doesn't meet the acceptance criteria. Um, so really not being constrained by it, by like what the scope is or by the ticket, I actually encourage you to challenge it. Um, but being really um, intentional in terms of understanding exactly what's being asked of. And then if you go beyond that or you want to show like a different solution, that's totally cool. Um, but being very clear on like what the ask actually was. Yeah. And kind of offering up both. And sometimes. So being diverse in, being in the diverse, solutions yeah. that you provide. Yeah. Like, you know, so trying mm -hmm. to like push the boundaries and then this is a safe option. Here's a safe option, here's the option. Like, so the, what I do a lot is I'm like, okay, well, here's what you asked for. Here's like what could be built really quickly. Here's what solves your business problem. Okay. This is like what really solves the problem. This is like kind of like, it's okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, but it's a patch fix, but, um, but, but then eventually they might say, oh, well, if this only takes a week more, then I'd rather just do that. Yeah. Um, or perhaps, you know, we'll find a time on the roadmap, like, okay, well, let's just like not build this and we'll just build it the right way in Q4. Yeah. And that's it. And so those kinds of conversations can surface if you, only if you really understand what's being asked of you and like what the, you know, external circumstances really are Yeah. Um, from a business perspective, because that's really what it takes to get things done. So we're going to come to the tail end of this. Um, I guess the last thing I want to ask you is what is a day like in your shoes? Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, and I know no one day is the same for, for product designers everywhere. Um, but yeah, if you could explain, you know, uh, a day or maybe, you know, the difference between two days, um, just to give people out there a feel for what they can expect to, you know, encounter on a daily basis. Because we've mentioned a lot here um, and we've also mentioned, you know, UXers come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, but for someone like you, you know, what do you do? Sure. So <clears throat> the first thing I do is I meet with my team. Um, so I have stand-up. That's pretty much the first thing I do every day. And I discuss what, what they're working on. Um, if there's any kind of like quick UX work, like, you know, I need to review something that's being built or they need like some additional, you know, assets of some kind. Could be like, uh, you know, they need to re redesign something or a dependency came up. So that's kind of like the first thing I do. And then... 
I'll usually um, dedicate anywhere from two to four hours a day, uh, like block it out for like kind of what I refer to as like maker time. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, where I'm actually in program. So I'm either, you know, ideating on um, new features. So it'll be like collecting patterns, um, talking with other designers to see like what kind of explorations they have done. Um, and really kind of understanding like what are the various ways that a certain problem can be solved. Yeah. Um, you know, and, that, and they'll be doing that. Um, so I'm usually at any given point like in like an exploration type phase and then in a more execution focused phase. Yeah. So I'll usually, there'll usually be one project that it's much more around user flows, understanding where data comes from, um, really thinking through all the scenarios of a particular feature. Um, and that's largely for you know product managers and being able to communicate that a little bit better, um, and then and then I'll have a certain amount of time that's dedicated to a little bit more like UI design, um, which is kind of more on active projects. Things are going to be built very quickly, um, and so just like the process that I mentioned, where um, you know being clear on like what can be done now versus like what is going to be a little bit more downstream, yeah. and so offering you know being I usually try and get out get the simple solution out of the way like pretty quickly yeah because I work within a design system so it's relatively straightforward yeah and then um, and then kind of pushing the boundaries and that's like kind of where that exploration takes place that's when you can introduce things like you know dribble or other places yeah. um, and really start to do that um, and then the the remainder of my time um, is you know usually in like meetings of some sort either with my dev team like figuring out like what's going to be built or any technical dependencies or um, kind of ideating with um, my product manager on you know what's what's next what should we be doing next where should we focus our efforts from a UX standpoint um, should we plan any research studies things like that so it's kind of like an oscillation of like making sure that the stuff that I already designed yeah. is going well so that's like basically what I do with my dev team and then you know kind of usually working by myself in terms of, you know, thinking of like new features and yeah. um, and then, you know, working on actual uh, screens and then more with product manager, which is like much more forward looking strategy. Yeah. Um, she'll tell me like what's going on in um, like the product manager meetings, like, and that's where a lot of the business objectives come in. So it's a, kind of a mix of things, but it's really um, in the end about, you know, really strong collaboration skills and managing multiple workflows. So yeah just making sure like you know you're thinking ahead but you're also very grounded and making sure that things you designed are being built in the way that you know they were designed to and if they can't then you come up with a, a better solution yeah so. now I think that's like one of the best things that like about being a product designer is like no one day is the same at no point are you going to feel like a robot and if you do feel like a robot you're probably at the wrong organization but when you're at the right organization uh, you know things like you're using your brain on a daily basis at no point do you feel like you're just like you know going with the flow um you're constantly pushing yourself um but yeah i just wanted to end it off by saying thank you so much for joining me on this episode uh i wanted to you know leave this to you to sign off and uh, what is any advice you have for someone that they should do like right now like they are what is the first thing they should do if they're thinking about getting into this industry um, and anything else you have uh, to sign off yeah I think the the first thing that you need to do is know what you're getting into it's not for everybody um, I I obviously really like it um, however I would um, book some coffee meetups with real UX designers um, 
you know, of any level, doesn't even if they've just had a couple years of experience, mm -hmm. and really just pick their brain on what they like, you know, what their background is, what they hate about it, um, what are some of the real challenges, you know, as a designer in an organization, um, and understand what kind of has made them successful um, so far, and just kind of really assess whether or not it's for you. Um, and, and I think from that, those experiences, you're going to learn very quickly that there's so many different types of UX designers that are not portrayed in the media. Yeah. Um, and I think that'll you know, be very uplifting um, for a lot of people because there's just you know, so many backgrounds and there's so many ways to add value to a product. Um, yeah, so that was the first thing I would do. And then it comes back to the first thing about knowing yourself. Thank you so much, man. Um, we'll have to get you on for another episode, okay? Sure. Right, Anytime, man. man. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so that is it for the ninth episode, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, just a quick heads up uh, moving forward. Uh, next episode is the big double digits, number 10. Um, I'm so happy uh, to be making this podcast for you all. Uh, and I'm really thankful to everyone out there that's listening. And uh, thank you guys for all the support and the messages coming in that you're listening and that you like it. Uh, please continue to let me know what I can do better or what I'm doing well. Um, any feedback is good feedback. Uh, but yeah, for this next episode, I, I kind of want to uh, do something a little special. Um, I may bring back uh, Danny in it. I uh, may have more than one guest on it. Um, I don't know, I'm still brainstorming, but definitely expect something special. Uh, but yeah, uh, that said, uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode. And I will catch you all on the next one. Peace.